I am Matthew Galt, and this is Cyber 2023, baby. Let's do it. First stream and show of the year. It's all about facial recognition. Facial recognition technology is here, and whether we like it or not, cameras all across the world are scanning faces and building databases. There's a popular misconception that technology is objective and unbiased. But that's not true. All systems carry the biases of the people who created them, and nowhere is that more true than facial recognition systems. And today's show is about how those biases come to bear and the dangers of running recklessly forward without considering the consequences. All the way back in 2013, the University of North Carolina Wilmington published a data set meant for facial, meant for facial recognition systems. It was more than one million images of trans people pulled from YouTube showing trans people at various stages of their transition. This was done without permission from the original posters. Well, Why? because terrorists might one day take hormones to alter their face and beat border control systems. Story gets weirder from there. Now, here to help us tell this story is Oz Keyes. Keyes is a researcher and PhD candidate at the University of Washington's Department of Human-Centered Design and Engineering. They're also the co-author of Feeling Fixes, Mess and Emotion in Algorithmic Audits, which is a scientific audit of the data set we're going to be talking about today. Oz, how are you doing? How is 2023 going for you? It's going well, and I'm grateful to be here. What about you? Uh, it's going all right. I'm still getting I'm getting adjusted to the year. I, I don't know how I feel about it yet, but it's only been a few days. We'll we'll see how it goes. Yeah. All right. So first, can you tell me a little bit more about yourself, the the work you do, your area of research, and how you came upon this data set? Totally. Um, so uh, I'm a as said, a PhD candidate at the University of Washington. Um, my work is kind of split into two areas. The first is looking at AI ethics and algorithmic um, sort of biases. It, biases feels like a weak word, but basically like the, the sort of like ethical problems and violence involved in a lot of modern uh, data scientific practices. Um, and the second is the history of trans medicine and um, scientific research around that. Um, I first ran into this data set sort of indirectly. I, I ran into the papers about it uh, as part of a different project I was doing way back in 2017 or 2018 um, and sort of filed it away in my head for um, you know future investigation. And then I had some free time on my hands and I decided to do that investigation. And at almost the same time, a researcher who I then didn't know, and I'm now gratefully friends with, uh, Jeannie Austin, who's my co-author on the paper, emailed me out of the blue to say, hey, I've read your previous work. I'm looking into this data set. Would you be interested in collaborating? Um, and so we ended up taking advantage of, of a weirdness, I guess, which is that a lot of the development of these data sets happens in... Um, you know, private companies and organizations where there's very little you can do. Um, but this one came from not just a university, but a public university, um, a university where everything is up for grabs under the Public Records Act in North Carolina. Um, and so we sent off a public records request and 
you know, didn't actually expect to find any of the stuff we did. We weren't planning on writing about, oh, you know, this person has been acting in a way that is like deeply unethical in, in sort of very obvious and explicit ways. We were just planning on looking at, you know, how do they think about gender and how did they consider that and what they were doing? So it was kind of a surprise when we actually got the emails and found the, shall we say, gaps between what they had been saying and doing and how they had been like covering their asses with say journalists or their own participants or in publications. Let's, let's back up just a little bit. What is yeah. this data set? What, what is in it? Can you describe it for us? Sure. So um, it's called the HRT data set. Um, and it is basically a data set of millions and millions of images of trans people at various stages of medical transition, specifically uh, hormonal transition, hence the name HRT hormone replacement therapy. Um, and they made it by grabbing a load of videos of trans people off YouTube and that were um, transition timeline videos that are designed to to show, you know, changes over time. And um, basically sort of like taking every frame from those videos and sequencing them. And then you've got millions of pictures of uh, how hormonal transition like changes someone's appearance over the course of years. In four for what purpose is a database like this created? So the original rationale, well, databases generally tend to be created for one of two reasons, either because um, people want to do facial recognition or because people are bored. Um, in this case, the actual rationale they used was um, closer to the former, but was essentially uh, what if terrorists take hormone replacement therapy to sneak across the border and blow stuff up? Um, which is already a big red flag to me about the author's level of understanding of gender, trans people, hormones, biology, basic causal logic, because not only has it uh, never been done, but um, there's really no reason to think that that would ever be a thing that would be done. Um, you know, people transition precisely because having your body flooded with hormones that are not compatible with, um, like, your sense of self is a deeply unpleasant experience. Like, it, it completely screws up your sense of self. Um, and so the idea that people would just volunteer for this for sort of funsies is, is kind of ridiculous. Um, it, it is telling, I guess, in the sense of it does tap into these broader narratives of like trans people as threats or um, transition as a form of subterfuge, um, which are both deeply transphobic sort of tropes and remarkably common. And so I wasn't surprised to see them crop up, um, but I was somewhat surprised to see them crop up in the work of someone who... Um, has subsequently claimed that actually what they're doing is trans inclusive because they're trying to make sure these systems work for trans people by including these images as well. We'll, we'll, we'll get to all of that because it's, it's quite yeah. the journey. Um, so oh, yeah. the, the gentleman behind this, um, obviously there was, it was not just him that worked on it. Several other people did, but kind of the person who's become, I would say made himself the face of the status set and has defended it now for going on a decade. Um, Dr. Carl Risnick. Uh, at the University of North Carolina, Wilmington. Uh, I've written, I wrote a piece on kind of about your algorithmic audit and the back and forth with him. And I, in the course of that reporting, 
uh, I talked to him for, I interviewed him for about an hour uh, and he's very chatty and very open about what he thinks and feels about all of this. Uh, and I have a little bit more of the origin story uh, that I don't think made it all the way into my piece that I will share with you now. Um, he was teaching a class in 2011 uh, and part of the class was how do we beat these like students help me beat these facial recognition systems. What can we do here? And after the class, a student walked up to him, uh, had their phone out and showed him one of these YouTube videos. Um, this is something that he had never heard of before and didn't really uh, understand. Uh, and he sees these, this video and he's like, this is, this is how terrorists could get across the border and, and beat these facial recognition systems. Uh, this is this is incredible. These systems aren't super sophisticated yet at the time. You know, this is again ten years ago, more than ten years ago. Uh, we should build a data set to help these systems figure out how to track a trans person across their transition. Um, and he gave as to me as one of the justifications for this, or one of the reasons he thought this was so compelling, um, is that he's a he's a gym rat and he's a weights guy. Uh, and he said, you know, I've seen what happens to people's bodies when they take testosterone and see how much, uh, morpho- how many morphological changes there are. Um, and though it has never happened in the recorded history of terrorism, uh, it could. And so we should study this thing. Um, and then yes, kind of when confronted with, uh, some of your arguments, uh, he did fall back on, well, I want trans people to have a seat at the table. Facial recognition systems aren't going, aren't going anywhere. They're going to be used. And for them to be used properly, we need these kind of data sets. But like, we can set all of that aside and I think start digging into they, there's so, there's so much weird stuff here because they built this data set using images that were on YouTube without getting the permission of the people that had uploaded them, uploaded them. Right. And that feels like me being pretty ignorant of the scientific, the official scientific processes here. Is that not an ethical violation? That feels very weird. Yeah. So it it is very weird generally, and it is also particularly weird and violating in context. So the generally is, um, Yeah, strictly speaking, under the sort of like formal rules of institutional review boards, um, if you're just collecting information that is in public and that is not sensitive uh, sort of information and you're not interacting with people, then, yeah, on paper, you don't have to ask anyone's permission on paper. But this idea that, oh, well, the data is in public, so it can be used is a thing that was challenged and like critiqued in computer science prior to like Rissenek ever publishing this work. If he's not familiar with the concerns about that, then that's a lack of reading on his part. Um, And the greater issue there is also like, you know, I mentioned if it doesn't contain private information or personal information. Now, not only are these videos somewhat sensitive by definition, you know, they're transition videos, they're transition timelines. Um, a lot of them contain sufficient information to re-identify the person who had uploaded them. And that was, you know, I know that because we uh, did that re-identification so that we could let people know that they'd been in this data set, even though Carl didn't think that that was worth doing. Um, And we did that like a decade after the fact, you know, 
when like a lot of stuff on the internet had ceased to be, people shut down their websites, they changed their handles, all the rest. And even so, we could still identify sort of multiple um, people. So when you're including people's narratives of their medical experience with sufficient like information to re-identify who that person is, I really struggle to see how that's not, you know, personal information, how that shouldn't have been under the oversight of some kind of ethical authority. Um, the more contextual and specific sort of ethical problem here is also, you know, those videos themselves. Transition timelines don't exist because um, people are bored and they have a YouTube account. Um, they exist as a resource for people within the trans community. A lot of the time, it's difficult to get reliable information about what to expect from transition and like the trajectories you might go down, what you might experience. And so transition timelines uh, kind of came into existence as a way for people to communicate like what their experience was and to work as a tool for like education within trans communities and, you know, countering misinformation about the trans experiences. Um, and so to take this out of the community and use it to instead uh, surveil trans people and try and, um, you know, make it impossible for people to not be tied to who they were pre-transition is just, I, like, I almost want to say perverse. It is in the sense of it is a, a corruption and perversion of what the videos were even attended, uh, intended for, particularly because, um, you know, when this became known, a lot of people quite understandably took their videos offline because they didn't want to be part of this data set. They didn't want to be re-identified based on this data set. Um, and so what this research project actually did was it misappropriated um, trans people's in-community resources. And as a, as a consequence of that misappropriation, that community got smaller and lost resources that it had. So Far from uh, giving uh, Carl giving trans people a seat at the table, whatever the hell that means, um, he broke into our like clubhouse and walked off with our wheelie chairs. Like he didn't just not give us a seat; he made it harder for us to sit. So it was my understanding that universities have like an ethical review process for. Uh, this kind of work, did that not come into play at the University of North Carolina, Wilmington? It didn't really. So the short version is there's basically two ways that you can go through ethical review at a university in the United States. Um, one is under institutional review board, um, which they make you fill out a shit ton of paperwork. You uh, have to report in on uh, to them what you're doing. There's a lot of discussion and back and forth and monitoring. Um, and the second is uh, to basically write to them and have them write back and explain that um, they're not going to supervise you because they don't think that there's anything sensitive in what you're doing. Um, in this case, the second path is exactly what happened. Um, they communicated, if they communicated, I think you know this better than me, um, to the IRB uh, about what their plan was. And the IRB basically said, yeah, that's fine. We don't care. Like, it's not it's not sensitive research enough for us to be involved. Um, I think that decision was a wrong one, but I am not surprised for a couple of reasons. The first is uh, IRB 
policy and rules really haven't adequately confronted the existence of the internet and the fact that there is all this data around and that you can chain it together and re-identify people from stuff that's in public. Basically, they take the approach to sort of like overly uh, sort of generalize that unless it's someone's medical records, if they put it on the internet, you can do whatever you want with it and you don't have to ask anyone. Um, you know, there's an example of this here at the University of Washington. In fact, there was a paper put out a few months ago that used um, trans people's images of um, surgery scars after mastectomies, so after breast removal, um, to that they just grabbed off trans subreddits and places on the internet, and they used them to try and write a paper. And that was from the medical school, and they didn't need to go through any ethical review whatsoever because it's on the internet, so it's fine to use. Um, and if this sounds ridiculous to a lot of people, then that's frankly because it is. There's really no excuse for the institutional review boards um, not to be up on, you know, the internet, a thing which has now existed for longer than I have. Um, and the reason, but the reason that they haven't is that an IRB's goal is not, in fact, to protect people. An IRB's goal is to protect the institution. Um, they're not concerned about things happening that harm people. They're concerned about things happening that damage the institution's reputation or access to research funds. And as a result, the definition of harm tends to be um, constructed in a very legalistic and formal way. Um, what is harm is whatever the federal government says is harm, because what we're worried about is not causing harm. It's violating rules that lead to all our grant money being removed. Um, so, for example, uh, there are additional protections that you need to take with vulnerable populations, right? So if a study is of vulnerable populations um, or involves them, then uh, the IRB is meant to give it more scrutiny. Um, trans people are not considered a vulnerable population in any context. Uh, if you're in prison or a child or a Native American, then you're a vulnerable population. That's it. Um, I've actually had the UW IRB, you know, I wanted to do a study. I sent them my materials um, and they came back to me approving my study, but only on the condition that I weakened my protections for participants because they were worried that I was taking so much care of my participants that I wouldn't actually be able to do the research. Um, their goal is not protect everyone. Their goal is avoid pissing off anyone who can take money away or make the university look bad and otherwise avoid pissing off researchers by undermining the ability to do research. So if an IRB doesn't think that your study is a big deal after spending 15 seconds thinking about it or looking at it, or they don't think that it would piss off anyone who controls the funding taps, then they just let you through. Yes. So I'll, I'll go back through some of the, the back and forth here. Uh, yeah. I asked Carl about this directly when I talked to him, Dr. Risnick, um, and he told me that they, at the time, as far as he remembers, uh, as well as he remembers and records from the university do not exist uh, going that far back, which we will also get into here in a minute, um, that nobody like he ran it by the uh, the the review board and they said it's publicly posted information no big deal 
um, which I believe is also the, the IRB confirmed that to you. Uh, and then when I reached out to them, they said, and I will quote, uh, the university is hesitant to speculate about what it would have done in 2012 or would do today. In 2012, Dr. Riesenek did not formally seek approval by submitting an IRB application to build this data set. However, IRB approval is not always required to conduct research on publicly available data, as publicly available data would be not be viewed as private information per federal regulations. Dr. Riesenek may have sought informal guidance in person or by phone, which is what he says that he did. On whether or not IRB approval was needed, the IRB regulatory receives inquiries of this nature. Um, yes. So the the comment, like I think the the necessary highlight there, I guess, is doesn't violate federal rules, which is incredible because when you think about it, it's basically saying, well, if it's not actively illegal, then it's fine. I think it's fair to say that there are a lot of things that are not actively illegal, which a responsible person should still not do. All right, cyber listeners, we're going to pause there for a break. If you're listening to the podcast, we'll be right back after this. If you're watching one of the live streams, we will be back immediately. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. All right, cyber listeners, welcome back. We are on with Oz Keys. We are talking about a... Uh, an interesting data set that was created at the University of North Carolina, Wilmington in 2013. Um, so the other, another thing I wanted to get into is something that we kind of don't, that isn't answerable, uh, but I feel like we can be pretty confident about what happened. And that is if you are going to scrape this data is the responsible and even ethical thing, not to contact the people who have posted these videos and say, Hey, can we use this for this purpose? Do we know if the researchers did that? I would argue that it is the responsible thing to do. And I think that's kind of a, almost a yeah, doy. like, sure. It's again, it, I'm sure that there's nothing in the federal regulations that specifically says like, it's nice to tell someone if you're going to use their stuff, but it seems pretty, pretty cut and dry to me. Um, the researchers have always claimed that they did it. Um, they, when, when there was some brief press coverage about this in, I think, 2014, 2017, one of the two, um, they, they were very explicit with all of the journalists that they totally asked people's permission first. The problem is that there is absolutely no evidence that they did ask people's permission. Um, there were no mentions or examples of like, you know, emails asking people's permission or even just letting them know um, in uh, the emails we got back from UNC Wilmington. Um, now, I know that the response, and it may be a correct response that they have to that is basically that uh, they upgraded their computer system halfway through doing the research project. And so a lot of the early emails would have got lost, which may be the case. However, there are two... Um, 
pretty strong hints, I guess, that they didn't bother letting people know. Um, the first is that the only emails we do have about consent is pissed off people who are in the data set writing to them asking why the hell they were never informed or asked or consulted. Um, and the second is an email that uh, I think one of the postdoctoral researchers or graduate students on the project sent to someone who was looking to use the database in which they said to paraphrase that, you know, distributing it more broadly might be difficult because they don't have the consent of the people who are in the data set. So yeah, they claim that they totally you know, let people know, but none of the people they allegedly let know remember that happening. And some of the uh, the other people on the project say that it didn't. In the course of your audit, you attempted to contact the people you were able to identify in the data set, correct? Did you hear back yes. from anybody? Uh, we did, actually. We heard back from, I think, two or three in the end. One, interestingly, uh, long after the paper was out, I think before, before the Vice piece on this came out, but um, just someone... Someone who's in, who had like got their inbox too full and like hadn't run into our email. So yeah, we've heard back from two or three. All of them report that they never got any kind of contact from the UNC Wilmington team. I heard back from two as well in the course of my reporting. Uh, one said that they were absolutely horrified. And this was the first that they had heard about any of this. Um, and the other was one of the people who had sent the email back in like 2017 saying like, hey, that's my picture what are you doing? Stop it. To yeah. which uh, it's kind of incredible. Their response is, uh, yeah, you're going to have to be more specific about what images you're using. And also I guess we'll remove it in future pictures, but Hey, the information's out there. There's not much you can do about it now. Um, and it appears that the, what they did to alter this data set uh as they were presenting in the future was put a clear or not a clear, a small green line over the eyes of the images that that was their update uh, to the data set to, to attempt to hide people's direct identities. Right. I mean, I, it, yeah. I'm not going to pull up a picture of it for the stream because I think I don't want to, I don't want to be doing the same thing that they were, <laughs> uh, but it is a, it is just over the pupils, this green, this green line, you can still very clearly see exactly who all of these people are, right? Yeah. And like that's the that to me is just the incredible so after I, I guess this is like skipping ahead, but very briefly, like after all of this sort of broke uh a few months ago, um I sort of thought that like, you know, Rithnek said he wouldn't do it again and like, you know, he was trying to be helpful. And I sort was sort of like, well, you know. I'm not going to sort of jump down his throat because I have a life to live. And also like, okay, if you're trying to do better, then fine. A lot of people in the world, in fact, everyone in the world has fucked up sometimes in extremely egregious ways, including myself. And so you do better in the future, like as well as you can. Um, I'm, I'm just going to have to trust that he's telling the truth. And then like two weeks later, he gives this presentation at a, um, U.S. government hosted workshop, and there are a thousand things to say about the presentation, but probably the most sort of head desk inducing thing was that it contained a load of images of the participants and of the people who are in the data set just as examples. That's what learning looked like to him, apparently, and doing better in the future. 
um, was doing exactly the same shit he'd been doing before, but this time, I guess, while defensive. Well, the audience is different too, right? Yeah. Except the uh, slides themselves were publicly released by him, mm-hmm. so which is how I have a copy of them. Uh, I've got a question from the audience here. Do you have any information about how this is handled in other countries? Is, for example, the EU more or less open or inclusive? This is a really good question. Um, in terms of sort of like the structure of uh, research permissions, I guess I'd say it, it's really a mix. Um, some countries are actually more backwards feels like the wrong word, but sort of like less restrictive than uh, the U.S., so uh, one example is Denmark, where uh, in Denmark, they take sort of the research protections, the participants, you know, the Declaration of Helsinki, the Nuremberg Code, so on. They interpret that very strictly so that it basically only applies to biomedical research. Um, ethics, if you're doing research like this, consists of don't plagiarize or commit sort of like research fraud. And that's it. Um, so honestly, in terms of sort of formal research ethics, uh, I don't think that, that there are many places that are doing it, that are formally doing it, what we'd call well. Um, there's a longer debate to have about whether sort of like formal regulations are the best way to go anyway, but that's a, another conversation. Let's talk instead about data security um, and what the researchers claimed that they held on to and what they actually held on to. Um, because the, the data set is this million images. Uh, their kind of argument from the beginning is that they had never held on to the entire, they didn't download the entire videos and did not have them stored in a database. I believe like what they were, what they were saying, we see some of this in the emails is that they would send like a, a doc that had just a list of the YouTube links. Right. Um, uh, in the course of your audit, you discovered that this was not necessarily uh, actually true. Yes. Uh, basically, what we found was, and this was this was after we'd done the entire research project, was the interesting thing. This was just tidying up, and then this happened. So we're going through the emails, and you know they've claimed the whole time that they didn't redistribute the images, they didn't even store the videos. All that they would do was send people a list of the YouTube links, which frankly, at that point, it feels almost improper to call it a data set. Like, if you, if you could make your data set into a YouTube playlist and just send people a link to the playlist, is that really a data set? Um, but so that's what they were claiming. And then towards the end of the project, we are just like tidying everything up and like making sure all the quotes are accurate in our draft. And we see this email that they were sending, one of the many emails that they were sending to people looking to reuse the data set for other things. And it's got this um, tiny URL in it, right? Like a, a URL shortener. And just on a whim, expecting that it will definitely be dead, uh, I type the URL into my browser. And it's not dead. It's very much alive. And it's to a Dropbox that isn't password protected at all, that is just open to the internet, that contains um, the full videos from each of those YouTube links. So they claimed they were only sending the links along and they didn't store the data, let alone redistribute it. But they did. We know that they did. We 
found the uh, repository that they were sending people and that they were uh, throwing around to researchers in a whole host of countries and a whole host of disciplines. And it was the full videos just sat there hanging out. Um, even if the authors of the videos had actually taken them down from YouTube specifically to avoid this kind of, of reuse. Yeah, the the kind of the archaeology of doing this story, and I assume your audit as well, was very interesting because I'd say like seventy percent of the of the YouTube links are now dead in some way, either completely yeah. removed or set to private, so only friends can see it, right? Um, but here is this, uh, and I believe somewhere they even reference how big the file is in one of the emails, right? They say it's more than a gig, uh, all the videos all all together. Um, just in an open Dropbox link that, which is super, super wild to me. And in an open Dropbox link that is still sat there, what, like six or seven years after they claim that they deleted all of the data anyway, and like stopped redistributing it. And it, it completely undermines, you know, this idea of like, oh, well, it's in public. So there's nothing you can do. Like, no, they tried to take the video down and then you kept redistributing it. You know, that's not, there's not, my hands are tied. It's in public. It's, I am actively continuing to make it available. Can you, can we broaden this conversation a little bit? Um, Can we walk through, and I know this is something we've talked about on the show before, but I just really want to highlight it. What are the dangers of facial recognition systems broadly um, and the specific dangers to marginalized communities? Totally. So the broad dangers are, um, well, frankly, just the ubiquitous surveillance aspect of it. Um, I, I would say it goes into sort of like three domains. There's, we might, well, two domains. We might say there are the direct dangers and then there are the indirect dangers. So the direct dangers obviously are that it is um, a ubiquitous surveillance system that violates our privacy. Um, the indirect dangers are what it enables, we might say. Um, so on the one hand, it enables, um, more law enforcement targeting of people. Um, suddenly you have this network of cameras that are reporting back to the cops. Hey, here's, here's someone suspicious and leaves the police with the discretion to decide, like, who are we going to investigate? Who are we going to go after? And to be extremely, uh, understated, um, it turns out that the police are not in fact completely neutral in who they investigate and are sometimes super racist and deeply transphobic. Uh, it also, of course, is a big shiny thing that is being pro- that everyone promises will like totally revolutionize um, sort of social safety, and so serves as a mechanism to throw millions to billions of dollars into law enforcement at a time when not having enough resources is not the problem that law enforcement has, particularly in this country. Um, And, of course, it really just justifies a lot of other systems. If you want facial recognition, for example, then you have to have really high-def cameras everywhere, and you have to have all this money invested in computing and algorithmic development. And so even without the facial recognition systems themselves, the surveillance system still exists. It it has to. Um, It's just slightly less efficient. In terms of marginalized communities, I mean... I'd say the problem is twofold. The first, and this is the one that everyone fixes on, right, is these systems are biased. Sometimes they're biased because the data is biased. We see that a lot with um, 
questions of race and facial recognition, for example. Sometimes the data is biased because, or the system is biased because it can't not be biased, right? Um, if you have a system that is built around this assumption that there are two genders and these are physiologically represented and they are completely distinct, and once someone is in a category, they never switch to another category, then anyone who doesn't fall into that set of uh, restrictions is always going to be suspicious. It doesn't matter how good the data is, you know, you're always going to be outside the system. Um, but even more importantly, you know, like I said, in practice, these systems are not standalone AI. Like we talked in the introduction about the way that um, the biases of developers infect, uh, infect those systems, but there's also the biases of the users. Like there's no facial recognition system that just automatically leads to RoboCop being dispatched. It's not a fully automated system. Instead, what tends to happen is that um, it's either used where there are existing suspects for a crime or um, alerts for suspicious people, right, are um, funneled to sort of some central surveillance office, as it's always been with CCTV. And the CCTV people slash facial recognition people decide, like, who should we um, call the police about? Like, who should we dispatch uh, to, or who should have police dispatch to them? So in both cases, you run into some very human biases. In the case of, like, using facial recognition after the fact to find suspects, um, which crimes get taken seriously and which suspects are considered most dangerous and which spaces are most surveilled and so most likely to come up with with matches for facial recognition? Um, the answer is minority spaces and minority groups. Um, and in, in the case of uh, this sort of like proactive monitoring the world and looking for suspicious people, well, we know that law enforcement has pretty high biases in who they consider to be a suspicious person. Like a black person walking alone at night drunk is very different to the humans who are looking at the cameras from a white person walking home alone drunk. Um, and so rather than, you know, augmenting or improving on human biases, all that facial recognition really does is automate it. Um, you can still have one racist looking at 20 cameras or you can still have one racist like monitoring the cameras, but instead of having to individually look at 20, they have an algorithm to tell them which ones have something interesting happening on them. And that means that they can be observing 500 instead. I think that is a good place to conclude this discussion. Do you think we covered it? Yeah, I think that covers it. Yeah. Oz, what are you working on now? Um, right now, I am working on a piece on um, autism and orientalism in uh, emotion recognition software um, with my friend Kerry Makarath, a piece on race on facial recognition with my friend Renata, and um, writing the canonical history of transgender medicine. So, you know, just like that, that one's just a small project. I figure I'll kind of have that done in a couple of weeks. <laughs> You're always busy and it's always fascinating. And I hope we have you on the show again to walk us through some of this stuff. Um, maybe with some more spicy things to say about Henry Kissinger. If you missed that, <laughs> go back and listen to the last time that Oz was on the show. 
I yeah, my defense is I I didn't realize that it would be uh just live broadcast. I assumed you'd edit out all the obscenities. Whoopsie. Oh, that's the I mean that's the best part. You've got a is there anybody nobody's going to come to Henry Kissinger's defense. There's no Henry that's Kissinger true. stands out there, right? Pretty much universally reviled. Um nope. And on that note, Happy New Year, everybody. Thank you for listening to the first cyber of the new year. Uh, We will be back, of course, uh, next week. If you like the show, please follow us on YouTube at youtube.com forward slash motherboard or on Twitch at twitch.tv forward slash motherboard TV. Follow us there. You'll be notified when we go live. You can participate in the chats. Uh, Stay safe out there on the Internet, and we will see you again next week. Bye-bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.